that triathlon show 330. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Mark Burnley. Mark is an exercise physiologist at the University of Wolverhampton, and in this episode, we discuss the lactate threshold, uh, specifically the first lactate threshold, uh, including things like how to measure it, what it means, and more. Uh, This is part one of a two-part interview with Mark, so we will have a bunch of other topics that we discuss in next week's episode, but I will talk more about that at the end of this one uh, as a teaser for what's to come next week. Before we get into this interview with Mark, though, a big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so that you can perform at your best. Everyone sweats differently, both in terms of sweat rate and sweat sodium concentration, so hydration strategies should be individualized, and fueling strategies will also need to be adapted based primarily on the duration and intensity of exercise or competition, as well as on the athlete's ability to tolerate certain amounts and types of fuel. You can use the free online sweat test and a quick carb calculator on precisionfuelandhydration.com to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs during training and racing. And you can book a free one-on-one video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TTS22 at checkout on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Zenate. The Zenate Indoor Swim Trainer is a one-of-a-kind swim bench that helps you improve your technique through an early catch, maximize propulsion through a more powerful stroke, and stay consistent by doing swim workouts at home even when you can't go to the pool. It is available in the UK, EU, and US, with free shipping in both the UK and the US. It is very affordable, similar to a pair of running shoes, and best of all, the investment is risk-free. If you are not in love with the Senate trainer after two weeks of using it and using the free training program, you can send it back and get a full refund. Learn more and get a 20% discount on your swim trainer on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Mark Burley. Welcome back to the Traveler Show, Mark. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad at all. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty good. Thanks. Uh, for new listeners uh, to the podcast that have not heard you before, we will have a link to your previous appearance in the show notes. But can you start by introducing yourself uh, and uh, your background? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Mark Burnley. Um, I'm a, an exercise physiologist. I'm currently working at the University of Wolverhampton in the West Midlands in the UK. Um, I've previously been at the University of Kent, where I was part of the endurance research group there. And prior to that, I was at uh, Aberystwyth University, where we did quite a lot of work on the kinetics of oxygen uptake and the power duration relationship, developing things like the three-minute all-out test, for example. Um, and my research areas are really looking at how we apply uh, mathematical models to physiological data and uh so that that's where the VO2 kinetics comes from. Uh, and then the power duration relationship, obviously, is a mathematical performance model, but it has very clear physiological correlates. So what are the, a lot of the things that I've been doing in the last 10 years or so is looking at those physiological responses uh, in relation to the critical power. So below and above the critical power, looking at the fatigue responses there 
and also some of the, the neuromuscular responses. So what's happening to EMG, what's happening to peripheral fatigue, central fatigue, uh, things of that nature. And most recently, I've started to, to move into more clinical uh, settings, looking at how exercise can be used in non-communicable diseases. So, you know, a completely different angle on the use of exercise and a lot of these metrics in in that sense as well. So that's where I am at the moment is uh, is working on that kind of thing. But certainly my background's been in uh, entirely in endurance physiology and the power duration relationship. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a lot of the things that we talked about in a previous podcast related to those topics like VO2 kinetics and critical power and so on. And uh, maybe that's a good place to start. We, we talked about critical power and that being uh, a phase transition between the, the heavy and the severe intensity domains. And uh, what I'd like to discuss uh, to start with today is the uh, the other domains or going one step lower. So the transition between the moderate and the heavy intensity domain. And uh, so c- can you talk about the different thresholds and different methodology methodologies that can be used to establish this first transition? Yeah, so um, when when we think about it in in terms of exercise physiology, we're thinking in terms of domains of exercise intensity, and we we essentially have four of them. And of those four domains, we have two thresholds that can define the boundaries between three of those four. So we have the moderate intensity domain, which is below the thing we call the lactate threshold. Then we have the heavy intensity domain between the lactate threshold and critical power or the maximal steady state. Uh, Then we have the severe domain, which is above uh, the critical power. And then we have a thing called the extreme domain, which is where if you start exercise and you reach task failure before the kinetics of oxygen uptake have allowed you to achieve VO2 max, you're in what we call the extreme domain. Now, there's not a threshold that separates severe and extreme. So that's a bit of a gray area. But there are definitely thresholds separating the moderate and heavy domains and the heavy and the severe domains. And where most of the attention has been focused in the last 10 or 15 years is on the critical power. So the the boundary between the heavy and severe domain. And that's really because an awful lot of athletic events take place in that region of the physiological response. So most uh, track distance events will occur at or just above critical speed or critical power, whichever way you want to look at that. Whereas the marathon, for example, is something that occurs in the heavy intensity domain. So knowing where that boundary is, is really important. Um, It's also worth mentioning that often the first and the second threshold get mixed up in the way they're defined. So uh, you asked me specifically about the first threshold. The first threshold is the lactate threshold. Now, to my mind, and the way I've been trained, so this comes from uh, my work with Andy Jones um, and Helen Carter um, and a number of other uh, people working in this area, Joe Doust in particular, um, we were very um, heavily influenced by Carmen Wasserman's laboratory and the way in which they divide, define the lactate threshold. So we see that as the first sudden and sustained increase in blood lactate concentration during incremental exercise. So the way you would do that typically is you would get an athlete or a participant onto either a cyclogometer or onto a treadmill and you'd run them very slowly. So let's just stick with the treadmill because it's just easier to, to deal with. So you'd run them at, say, you know, if, if you think their lactate threshold is around 14 kilometers an hour, you might start running them at nine or 10 kilometers per hour. You'd run them there for three to five minutes. 
And at the end of that process, you'd either get them to step astride the, astride the treadmill and you take a blood sample from either the fingertip or the earlobe. Um, and then you up the speed by half a kilometer an hour or a kilometer an hour, depending on which you've chosen. And then you run them for another three to five minutes. And then you repeat the process again and again and again. The other benefit of that is you can take steady state measures, measures of the uh, VO2 response as well. So you get the VO2 and the heart rate relationship to go along with it. And then you plot the lactate as you go along. And because we have rapidly responding analyzers now where you can, uh, you can get a measure of blood lactate concentration within a minute, you can be doing this as you're going along. So it's not like you have to collect the data and then um, analyze it afterwards. You can do this out on the fly. So you can spot where this thing starts to rise and you can see where, where it's going. And what you tend to find is for the first three or four stages, lactate will essentially be around resting levels. So if you're measuring it in whole blood, resting blood lactate concentration will be somewhere between one and two millimoles per litre. That's the measurement we make. And then as you cross that threshold, lactate will suddenly start to rise and it will continue to rise as you keep increasing the speed. And that first sudden and sustained increase in blood lactate concentration is the lactate threshold. And you might say, well, that's really simple, no problem. The problem is um, it doesn't always happen that you have a nice flat, stable baseline. Sometimes it's rising, sometimes it, it drops and then rises again. And so sometimes spotting that threshold point can be very, very difficult. And so there's all sorts of mathematical models and um, there's all kinds of um, thresholds where you state a particular lactate concentration and say that's your lactate threshold as a as a an objective way of measuring the threshold because you can obviously understand if you're looking along a line and then you see a jump it's quite a subjective ah oh, yes that's suddenly suddenly increased how sudden is sudden you know is a, is a 0.2 millimole per liter increase an increase or is it just noise so you've got to be a bit careful about that. And as a result, what a lot of people try and do is fit a curve to the lactate response and then see where the curve starts to accelerate. And then, of course, you're into the problem of what constitutes an acceleration. And all of those things kind of come into play. So there's a really good paper by Jamnik et al. published a few years ago uh, where they actually looked at all of the possible uh, or all of the markers that have been used in the literature to detect that first lactate threshold. And there are something like 25 of them. So it, it can be a really difficult um, thing to get your head around in terms of what the lactate threshold actually means. And we know that some of the markers that have been used in the literature, and the classic one is the four millimolar onset of blood lactate accumulation point, where you basically, what you're looking for is the point at which blood lactate reaches four millimoles per litre. And you say, right, that's the lactate threshold. We know in most, particularly in endurance athletes, for most people, that's going to be considerably above the lactate threshold and is actually going to be nearer the critical power or the maximal steady state. But even then, it's not going to be an accurate measure of that either. So I think what we've we've done over the last, uh, well, I'd say the last 15, 20 years, probably 15 or 20 years ago, we kind of decided that we weren't going to use the fixed blood lactate concentration. So you can't simply look at a lactate concentration and say that's the threshold. You have to look at the shape of the uh, lactate curve and I would also point out that a lot of people think that it is actually a continuous curve. So there's also a debate in some parts of, of the scientific community as to whether the lactate threshold even exists or not. Now, I'm not of the opinion that it doesn't exist because there is a 
there's a point where lactate's at resting levels and then there's a point where it's not at resting levels and the point where you go from one place to the other is the threshold but it would be remiss of me not to to point out that there there has been a debate about whether the lactate threshold is even a real thing that's quite a long answer but what i'd also say is there are other ways of measuring the threshold so you might have heard the ventilatory threshold be used as a marker or the gas exchange threshold. Well, these are essentially alternative ways of measuring that same thing, the first lactate threshold. And the reason for that is as soon as lactate rises in the blood, it's buffered by bicarbonate. And that bicarbonate buffering produces extra carbon dioxide. That extra carbon dioxide can be detected by a gas analyzer, but it can also stimulate ventilation, which is where you get your ventilatory threshold from. Now, the only issue with that is that people have various different breathing styles and breathing patterns, which can be quite noisy. And so it's quite difficult to actually pick up a ventilatory threshold just by plotting ventilation against speed, for example. And so the most common ways of detecting the ventilatory threshold by gas exchange is either by using ventilatory equivalents, which is where you take minute ventilation, you divide it by VO2. And if that starts to rise, having previously been falling, that's an indication you've crossed the lactate threshold. Or more commonly now, we use the V-slope method, which is where you plot uh, VO2, or rather you plot uh, on the Y-axis, you plot carbon dioxide output. On the X-axis, you plot VO2. And where you see a break point between the two, you plot two lines and you can see that the intersection, that intersection is your V-slope and that intersection is your gas exchange threshold, which is caused by lactate starting to rise in the blood. Now, normally, if you're if you're measuring lactate directly, you'll do a stepped incremental test. So you do three to five minute stages. If you want to measure the gas exchange threshold, you usually do a ramp test where you're continuously changing the power because then you get a more rapid evolution of carbon dioxide and therefore a, a, a more, uh, if you like, a, a steeper break point so you can detect it more easily. So those are really the, the measurement options. But that first lactate threshold is worth pointing out when you measure it properly, it's actually quite a low intensity compared to uh, critical power. So typically we see lactate threshold appearing at about 40 to 60% of VO2 max, whereas the, um, the critical power is often 65, 70, eight, sometimes 80% VO2 max is where you'd expect to see the critical power. So there is that distinction in terms of um, intensity. The other thing to point out is that the way you feel when you cross the lactate threshold, often you don't notice it. Whereas you definitely notice crossing the critical power into the severe domain because you then get very, very significant respiratory drive. Um, and you cross a thing called the respiratory compensation point sometime after. And you really do notice that increased breathing frequency and, and uh, increased tidal volume, which you don't necessarily notice when you cross the first lactate threshold, which may be why a lot of people have of mistaken one threshold for another. If you're, if when, when you say colloquially, I'm running at threshold, you're probably actually running at critical or around critical power or critical speed rather than the first lactate threshold. So that's a very long way of saying it's quite a complex area. Yeah. And I think, I think maybe that terminology is, is worth unpacking a little bit for a lot of listeners because there is clearly a big difference in how these terms are used in popular media versus yeah. in scientific literature. As you say, when somebody says that they're running a threshold, or even if you read 
a book like Daniel's Running Formula or Training and Racing with a Power Meter or what have you, they will talk about threshold training, but that will correspond to something like training at around critical power or yeah. uh, in, in that in that region anyway. So so when when you're talking about lactate threshold here, it, it is really as you said that first rise yeah. in blood lactate and. It has in the past, and I have also used that term, the aerobic threshold, which is yeah. maybe not a good name for it. But but the good thing about it, at least, is that it kind of separates things a yeah. bit, so it makes it a bit clearer what we're talking about. But I guess that the reason that you are talking about the lactate threshold without necessarily even specifying that it's the first one is that uh, in your mind, and I agree with that, you have critical power as the second phase transition and yeah. lactate threshold is the first one, and, and there's really only one lactate threshold. There, there yeah. isn't really a clear second lactate threshold. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, and you're also right about the terminology that's been used um, in, you know, in coaching circles as well. So, you know, critical power and functional threshold power are often used interchangeably. I don't think we'll go down that rabbit hole now, but um, in terms of the first lactate threshold or, or what I would call the lactate threshold, you also have the aerobic threshold has been used to, to describe it. VT1, the first ventilatory threshold, and then the gas exchange threshold is also used. It's also, if you um, go back into the, the dim and distant past, you'll hear it called the anaerobic threshold as well, just to confuse people. Wasserman's lab would have used the anaerobic threshold to describe the first lactate threshold, whereas coaches tend to use aerobic threshold for the first one and then anaerobic threshold for the, the uh, what, what we now term the critical power. So terminology is a real problem in this area. Um, we also have alongside the gas exchange threshold, we have the lactic acidosis threshold as well. So that that's also something that, that comes up. And um, the lactic acidosis threshold is, again, the lactate threshold. It's the same thing. Um, so you've, you've, and the reason you've got to be careful with this is because we also have other tests. So we have the lactate minimum test. Now, the lactate minimum test is or was, I should say, a an attempt to measure the second threshold, the, what we now call the critical power, but it was supposed to be measuring the maximal lactate steady state, which is also another marker of the heavy, severe domain boundary. What we discovered or what Helen Carter discovered was it didn't work very well because it was determined by when you started the test and how big your increments were to determine how the lactate behaved. So that was problematic as well. Um, but the, probably the best way to understand it is that we have a first lactate threshold, which is where lactate goes from the resting level and starts to rise. And then we have a second threshold, which we now call critical power. And interestingly, there is a second lactate threshold in a sense, because we have this thing called the lactate turn point. And that's where as lactate's rising, it starts to rise more rapidly. Now, um, Andy Jones, for example, has used this quite a lot in athletes because he sees it quite a lot in athletes. But in untrained individuals, when I've done lactate threshold testing, you don't often see it. So it's not a particularly uh, common thing to see in people who are uh, not a very, very highly trained, because when athletes um, do a lactate threshold test, often that those change points are very clear to see because they're, they're running extremely fast. And so the rates at which these things are evolving are, are quite quick. Um, whereas most of the time in, in relatively untrained individuals, you don't necessarily see, a, if you like, what you might call a kink in the lactate response, which would reflect that, that lactate turn point. 
But where you do see it, it does seem to correlate quite well with the critical power and where the critical power is. So there is there is also that. But those are the two thresholds we need to think about. Lactate threshold, the first one, critical power, the second one. Yeah. yeah. And I would add to that uh, lactate turn point discussion that uh, personally, when, when I do a lactate test, I don't see that. And I'm definitely not uh, untrained, but I think it might be related to kind of the athlete phenotype for a long distance triathlete. Maybe it's we're, we're not typically very good at yeah. uh, producing highly glycolytic uh, powers or those shorter yeah. durations. So, so that might be the reason. Another reason might be that I actually use 10 minute stages so maybe i get the lactate up a little bit higher than i would yeah. for three or five minutes in the in the earlier stages and that's yeah. why, why i don't see a second turn point yeah. um but uh you you have mentioned now a, a few different methods in, including the uh, uh traditional lactate testing as well as ventilatory testing uh ramp test so so what would you say what are your recommendations in terms of finding that first threshold and and secondly is it important to know what that first threshold is yeah so um i think provided you're using a standard validated method it's not really too uh, important how you do the test so if you're going to do a staged incremental test you just need to make sure that the stages you're doing are long enough for lactate to fairly reflect what's going on in the, the muscle and the blood. So three to five minutes. We've typically used four-minute stages. I've seen others use, so Ed Coyle, for example, often uses five-minute stages. But provided you're reaching a steady state or quasi-steady state at the end of that stage, um, then that should be fine. So in athletes, you might be able to use a three-minute stage because they're able to get up to that steady state more quickly than untrained individuals. When you're not sure, you might want to use a five-minute stage. If you're going to use a ramp test, you're not going to be taking lactate samples anyway because you just don't have a, um, because it's a, a, a essentially a, a non-steady state test throughout. There's no point taking lactate and trying to um, associate it with a particular power. So there you're using gas exchange. And in that sense, you want a test that's going to last about eight to 12 minutes so that you can get, it's a, a classic cardiopulmonary exercise test then that you use in hospitals and anywhere else, where you want enough data so that you can see the trend in the ventilatory equivalents, you can see the trends in VO2 and VCO2, and then measure those using the V-slope or you know, by detecting changes in ventilatory equivalents. So usually, I know I've used both. Um, usually I would go for a ramp test just because then you don't have to do all of the, the kind of the lactate measurements alongside it as well. I and mean, it's, it's, you know, if you've got a, a, a well-working metabolic cart, you're probably better off using the gas exchange threshold. The only issue there is that you then have to ramp correct your powers because the, when you measure the, the change in uh, carbon dioxide output relative to VO2, the point at which you measure that is a delay because it's a non-steady state test. So essentially what you do is you um, subtract two-thirds of the ramp rate from uh, your where the power was. So let's say you do a 30-watt per minute ramp. You subtract 20 watts from the power at which you measured that change in VO2 or VCO2, and that then gives you an accurate measure of your uh lactate threshold or gas exchange threshold and we know it's accurate because we've done experiments where we've done say 90 percent of gas exchange threshold or 
we've just gone just above the gas exchange threshold and we've actually measured the correct change in VO2 and VCO2 that you'd expect in those different domains. Um, so you can measure lactate threshold directly using lactate and staged incremental tests, or you could do it with a ramp test, which is if you've got a metabolic heart, it's slightly simpler and quicker to do. Yeah, another advantage of that would be that you would get uh, your VO2 max uh, yeah. and your maximum aerobic power as well, yeah. or maximum it's aerobic worth speed. pointing out on that uh, point, what we tend to do if we're doing a staged incremental test is we'll do the stages until we reach about 4 millimoles per litre. The reason we do that is because once you've reached 4 millimoles per litre, you're going to do another stage of the test anyway, and when you measure that, it might be up around 6 or 7 millimoles per litre, so you're going to get a good lactate threshold curve. At that point, you stop the test and you can either go straight into a ramp test to get the VO2 max. So you basically change the power function or the, the speed function to um, ramp up to max. Or you give them a break and then do uh, a ramp test from that last power that you were or speed that you were running at. And then you ramp them up to VO2 max. So you can get them both done. It mm -hmm. takes longer, uh, but you can get both parameters using the staged incremental. And then it's basically a hybrid of a staged incremental and a ramp test as well. We yeah. used that frequently in Brighton uh, when I started my PhD. And then we moved on to, to just doing a ramp test, partly because we we had slightly better ergometers and, and better metabolic carts later in, in that research phase. So it made sense to do ramp tests rather than staged incremental tests. Yeah. Yeah, the, the advantage then of doing a lactate test is that that's something most people don't have a metabolic cart in their basement, but yeah. it's fairly easy for people to get their hands on a portable lactate meter and uh, it's compared to a lot of equipment that we buy it's actually not that expensive so mm -hmm. so that's doable for people that want to do some testing themselves and if that is the case do you have any tips for how to go about that i i certainly have some based on my experience but i'm curious to hear what what tips you might have yeah so i think um you make a really good point there in the sense that the the other advantage of doing um direct lactate threshold measurements is you can measure heart rate and if you've got a metabolic cart or, or douglas bags you can measure vo2 alongside it because you're getting into a steady state for each stage so again i would if I was doing this in the field, and to be perfectly honest with you, I've never done lactate threshold testing in the field because I haven't had to. But if I was going to, I think there are advantages these days in the sense that you have power meters, you have GPS, um, and obviously you've with with GPS you you have the the photoplethysmography as well, so you can measure heart rate alongside it. Um, so if you've got a portable lactate analyzer that that you can bring along with you, a lactate pro or something like that then it's it's something where if you basically need to do five minutes of, of constant speed or constant power effort at, at a relative relatively low starting point. One of the things that, that people worry about with lactate threshold tests is how long they last. It's not important how long it lasts below threshold. What matters is, is how much you do above threshold. And if you're measuring this thing as you go along, you'll know when you've gone above threshold. And also your participant or athlete will tell you when they're, they're feeling that it's quite hard anyway. So it's not a problem. If you end up having four or five or six stages below the threshold, that's not a problem. That, what that means is you have a really nice set of baseline data from which you can, you can go up. So the biggest error I see in lactate threshold measurements is starting the test too high in terms of power output. Um, so if I had an app, if I had somebody who was saying that they were a good standard athlete, so you know, regional or national standard athlete, Let's keep it with a runner so it's, it's a fairly easy thing to think about. I would say 
um, start at perhaps nine kilometers per hour. I, I would even, if I was unsure, I might even start at the walk-run transition and say, right, once you're actually starting to run, then we'll take the first set of samples. And if it takes them 15 to 20 minutes to get to their threshold, that's not a problem because it's not those efforts are going to be in the moderate domain. They're not going to be fatiguing anyway. They're not going to use up your muscle glycogen because it's it's relatively low intensity. Once they've crossed the threshold, they're only going to be exercising above the threshold for 10 or 15 minutes anyway before you've got enough data to say, yes, that's that's where it is. So start as low as you can or low as low as you can. And then don't worry too much about the, the um, duration of the test because you're not going all the way up to VO2 max anyway in that particular phase of the test. And if you haven't got a metabolic cart, you're not going to go to max as it is. So that doesn't matter too much. Um, then the other thing you've got to think about is how much you increment because if you go up by, say, two kilometers an hour, then that's quite a big jump. One kilometer an hour is what we've typically used. If you've had an athlete in before and you know roughly where their threshold is, you might even go for half a kilometer an hour increase in uh, speed because that way you can get a much more, you can get much more data density around the threshold. So you can be more precise about exactly where it is. Um, but if I was going to start from scratch, it would be, you know, start just as they're running. And then one kilometer an hour increments for four to five minute stages. And, and that's the way I do a field test uh, for the lactate threshold. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, I use the same methodology, basically, that if it's an athlete that I'm working with, that I coach, so I know more or less where I think that their threshold will be than uh, trying to be more granular and get more density of data points around that makes makes sense. And that's uh, what I do when, when I self-test as yeah. well. But obviously, if you don't know the person, then then you might need to take slightly bigger steps to uh, uh, to to make sure that you don't spend the, the whole day testing. Um, and uh, what about interpreting the the curve? So, just for listeners that then might not be aware, basically, what you do then is you plot your lactate concentration against the speed or the power uh, on the x-axis and uh, and then as you say we're looking for that uh, that rise above baseline so can do you have any sort of any guidelines about how to how to then do that interpretation and, and find where your threshold actually is yeah so we always used to run a session on this uh, with our undergraduates uh, and you basically kind of give them a list of ways in which the lactate thresholds been measured before uh, what you essentially teach them is that, that you know they will a number of things will cluster around a certain point which is probably where your lactate threshold is and a number of them will be way off so like i said the um so the four millimolar uh, onset of blood lactate accumulation is almost always above where the threshold should be. Um, there's also uh, a number of mathematical techniques you can use, and there are uh, open source software that's available where you can actually do these things. Um, one of them is called the DMAX method, where you're looking at the maximal deviation of the curve from a straight line from the start to the end of the test. That tends to measure the, um, there's also a modified DMAX and there's, there's other things in there as well. But these things tend to measure the, uh, the maximal steady state or the critical power rather than the, uh, lactate threshold. So my advice is to keep it as simple as possible. We go for the first, we go for a sudden sustained increase in blood lactate concentration. So you basically, if you get a ruler and draw along the, um, the baseline, and then you can look for that increase visually. 
The other way to do it is the Ed Coyle way of doing the same thing, but then measuring a one millimolar increase in blood lactate concentration and calling that your threshold. That I think is is every bit as good because you're it's essentially doing the same thing, but it's doing it quantitatively. So it's finding a sudden and sustained increase, but it's now quantifying what that increase is. It's one millimolar, and then you, you spot it there. The fact that that might slightly overestimate the threshold is not really a problem if you're then using that for prescription because you wouldn't ever make somebody exercise exactly at threshold anyway. You'd want to exercise slightly below or slightly above to get the effects that you're looking for. So um, either one of those methods, I think, keep it as simple as possible and go for the first sudden and sustained increase either visually or quantitatively using the Ed Coyle method. If you're unsure as a coach or as a practitioner, then the best thing you can do is ask somebody else. So I have actually had uh, coaches and athletes email me with a lactate plot saying, could you just tell me where you think this is? And then I've, I've said to them, and said, yes, that, that correlates with what I'm doing, or they've said, no, I think I'm miles off or something like that. So um, what we do in, uh, if we're using this in a research context, you would get two independent reviewers to look at the lactate plot and then suggest what the lactate threshold is. If there's disagreement, then you get a third person in and then you might split the difference or what have you. But most of the time with a lactate plot, if you give them firm instructions about what you're looking for, they'll usually find the right spot or they'll find in a spot, not necessarily the right spot, the spot that will agree with another reviewer. So that's the way you do it as well. So there's no no harm in asking for help on this if you need it. Yeah. If we take an example of, of a runner and let's say we have done uh, several data points going up to 14 kilometers an hour and lactate is scattered around 1.4, 1.5, 1.6. And then suddenly we go up to 15 kilometers an hour and now lactate is two millimoles. So so now you can say that, okay, that's a, a sudden increase in yeah. lactate. Would you then say that their threshold is at the previous point, so 14 kilometers an hour, or at that point where lactate is increased at 15? They have to, if you have the rise at 15 kilometers an hour, then I'd say the lactate threshold was 14 kilometers an hour. And that's partly because um, I've been trained and taught by Andy Jones to be as conservative as possible in this because you, you don't want to overestimate it because then if you then set your uh, intensity domains or you you know you said if you set 90% of gas exchange threshold and you've missed the threshold by 10% then you're actually exercising at or possibly even slightly above the threshold and we were really careful we had to be really careful to make sure we were exercising in the right domains for a research perspective so that's that's where that comes from but yeah that it will be the that would be a 14 kilometer an hour lactate threshold in that case um, and you're not really doing the athlete or the, the person on the end of that a disservice because if you're then going to train them, you're going to use the same criteria when they come in again. And if they've improved, then the next one might be 15 kilometers an hour. So it's still, you know, you're still seeing training induced changes. And of course, when you set your training intensities, if it's 14 kilometers an hour and you want to exercise them in the heavy domain, then you're probably going to be exercising at 15, maybe 16 kilometers an hour to get into the heavy domain as opposed to maybe uh, 13 or 12 kilometers an hour to, to be exercising in zone one if you want to call it that yeah example. no that makes sense and and i just wanted to follow up as well with a comment about the the different open source software for example with that use different methods of calculating it objectively um i mean i understand all the reasons why it's 
good to have objective ways of calculating it but in my experience they just often don't really seem to work or they measure something that you you're not trying mm-hmm. to measure there's now i don't know if you used it but uh, a new app which is great uh xfislab.com yeah 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 that was what i was actually thinking of that's the latest yeah, one out because yeah. with that one you can input your data and and it calculates all of the different or a lot of the different methods anyway dmax and log log and what yeah. have you and and i've added my data in there but uh even the the methods that purportedly measure try to get to the same point we're not talking about this the second threshold but the first one they still vary a lot even when the data that mm-hmm. i have is very clean and there's a clear visual yeah. uh first lactate threshold that is that might be different than all of the ones that that are calculated objectively yeah. so yeah i i'm yeah, definitely I on the visual inspection uh of that school of thought yeah yeah, because if if the if the data that you input differs significantly from the character of the data that was used to determine the threshold or measure the threshold originally, then that's going to throw it out. So even if you have really clean data, if it's clean data that doesn't quite look like the original source in terms of you know Dmax or something like that, it assumes a certain curve shape and a certain acceleration at certain points. And if your data don't show that, it's going to then give you a different answer. So um, there's always going to be noise in data. And especially if you're collecting data in the field, there may even be some additional noise that isn't in lab data, which is going to change the the relationship between lactate and speed potentially. And as a result of that, you don't want to necessarily be a slave to a particular curve shape or a particular uh, mathematical model. So at that point, I would say visual inspection is probably yeah. the way to go. Uh, that makes sense because my data is essentially two lines, one that is completely flat and then one that is linear, and, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, one question uh, about lactate testing still is whether to sample from the finger versus the earlobe. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, the, the first thought is it doesn't really matter. Um, the only issue with the earlobe um, is that I don't often use the earlobe. I know people who swear by it, but what you need to also apply, you need to apply a vasodilator so that you've, you've got a good flow of blood. Um, but once you have that, um, and once you've punctured the skin of the earlobe, it, it does bleed very well. And what you do need is a free flowing sample. And one of the benefits of the earlobe as opposed to the fingertip or the thumb tip, for example, is when you take a blood sample from the thumb, let's say you've got somebody with hanging onto a treadmill here. Um, and you, you take a measure from the thumb, you have a tendency to grip it with your hand and squeeze it. You can't really squeeze an earlobe. Well, you can, but you're not going to get any blood out of it if you do. So what you do with the earlobe is you essentially hold it so that you can get to the sample. You basically, you hold on to the, you hold the bottom of the ear with one finger or one thumb. Whereas when you're taking a sample from the fingertip or the thumb tip, there is a tendency to squeeze and milk the sample. And that can affect how much lactate is in the, the red blood cells and how much lactate is in the plasma and how much is therefore expressed in your sample. So it can change your numbers. So what you need to do is apply a very, very consistent technique. And if you can, and, and people kind of, when I've um, done this uh, in teaching, some of the students sometimes get annoyed with the number of times I puncture their skin if I'm taking a, a, a blood sample from the thumb. Uh, and I simply say to them, that's because I don't want the previous wound to heal up and then start having to squeeze it to try and open it up again, because that's just going to do more skin damage. It's also going to change the data. And so what I tend to do is go for the side of the thumb or the side of the finger 
Uh, so the, the pad of the finger is not worth going for, really. You want to go slightly to the side of the pad, not right to the side, because that's going to hurt, but somewhere between the, the true edge of the finger and the, 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 finger, um, the finger print, if you like, you want to take a sample from there because then if people do have quite, you know, manual labor jobs and that kind of thing, they will have calluses on, on the, the pads of their fingers and that's going to be difficult to get through. So you want to go slightly to the side of that and then you'll get a free flowing sample. The other thing to do, uh, if you're going to do, if you're going to sample from the, the fingertips is to put your hand in hot water first. And that, that, what that will do is arterialize the sample. So you'll get a lot of blood flow. Your, your hand will go bright pink, essentially. And that will mean when you do take a blood sample, you get a really nice free-flowing sample of capillary blood and you don't have to squeeze the fingertip then. As they exercise, of course, they're going to heat up. And what you'll notice if you don't do that arterialization thing, what you'll find is the first few stages is quite difficult to get blood out. Um, so when I was learning to do this, I made this kind of mistake quite often of not heating the hand up. Um, and as a result of that, you end up with a wobbly baseline and it then makes it very difficult to spot that first sudden sustained increase. So it's really worth warming the hand up first um, and making sure that you, you're not trying to puncture through quite tough skin. And then it's it's actually quite easy to get a, a consistent lactate threshold. So those are the sorts of on the ground tips and tricks you can use to, to get the right sample. But whether it's the earlobe, whether it's the, the, the fingertip, doesn't matter provided you you're applying a consistent technique which does doesn't involve trying to squeeze the blood out essentially yeah no, that makes sense uh one more question on the interpretation of the lactate curve is does it matter does it have significance if one person might have their baseline at one millimole and another is at 1.8 or even in the low twos does that uh, does that tell you something about the athlete? Uh, does it inform in any way how they should train, or is it just that everybody's different in in the absolute values of lactate concentration? That is, yeah, I think it's, it's more that everybody's a little different in the absolute values of lactate. So you've got to understand where that might come from. I mean, it, the immediate thing to kind of jump on is say, oh, well, if somebody's got a high baseline lactate, then they're they're obviously fast twitch fiber dominant, or they're they're a power athlete, or something like that. And there may be an element of that in terms of, you know, absolute lactate production, but it's, it's probably more related to regional blood flow and those kind of things and, and how lactate might be expressed and whether it's being consumed in other tissues or not. And that might vary from person to person, which is, again, why we come back to using the visual inspection of these things is really important because if you stick to... Um, absolute lactate concentration or absolute lactate threshold concentrations so two millimolar or four millimolar i have seen people who have baseline lactates above two millimoles per liter so you'd automatically conclude on the first sample that they've exceeded their lactate threshold and that doesn't really make any sense so and again of course they'll get to four millimolar quicker than somebody with a baseline lactate of one millimolar so all of these things sort of point you in the same direction you need to do the visual inspection, or you need to understand baseline lactate and then work from there qualitatively or quantitatively. Yeah. And, and when it comes to using the information that you gain from uh, knowing your lactate threshold in training, you mentioned already a little bit that uh, you, you might want to train a bit below and a bit above the threshold. Can you, can you uh, elaborate on that and, and maybe some other tips that you would have for, for using the information to inform your training? Yeah, so again, it's um, 
it's a question of if you got the lactate threshold measured, that gives you a landmark where you can then set training or any exercise or, or pacing above or below the threshold. So if you're doing, uh, you know, you're setting up a, a, your, your training um, program or you're, you're, you're tweaking it, then of course, below lactate threshold is zone one training. So low intensity, long duration training or, or long, slow distance training will be done below the lactate threshold in the moderate intensity domain. What we might call threshold training, and it's a bit of a misnomer, but what's often uh, noted in the coaching literature as zone two training is between the first lactate threshold and critical power or critical speed, that's zone two. So that's where you would do your, your steady state threshold um, reason it where it depends where, and this is a funny thing about zone two, if you're at the top of zone two, so you're, you're pushing your critical speed, then, you know, you're going to be working hard and it's going to, you know, 20, 30 minutes is going to take a lot out of you. If you're working close to your uh, lactate threshold, but you're still in zone two, you could probably go for a couple of hours. And in fact, when you look at the speed at which most people run a marathon, they will run it just above their lactate threshold. And there's physiological reasons for that. I think we went into in the last podcast, but that means that zone two is a, is a you know, it's not a necessarily a one size fits all zone in terms of, of how you would do your training within it. Um, there's, a, there's a variety of different durations and a variety of different things you'd use. And of course, then zone three is above the critical speed. So above the critical power. So that's where you would do, you know, your tempo sessions. Uh, that's where you would start doing your interval sessions, your long reps, your shorter reps, and et cetera. That's where uh, all of that happens. And so that's that's how you'd use the whole thing in training. Um, in terms of competition, uh, the lactate threshold is really important for, and, and it gets more and more important as the duration of the event increases. So we know that, for example, elite marathon runners, we now know they tend to run quite close to their critical speed. And that's not the case for everyone, because if you're running a marathon in, say, anything longer than two and a half hours, you're going to be ever closer to your lactate threshold and your lactate threshold is going to, going to take on more and more importance for your performance. So lactate threshold is critical for recreational marathon runners to know in terms of how fast they're going to run a marathon. And then if we move into the, the, the domain of ultra marathon, so Ironman, half Ironman triathlons and, and ultra distance races. And then if you think about the extreme endurance event or the more extreme endurance events where you're doing your 24 hour bike rides and that kind of thing there lactate threshold becomes a ceiling so you say this is the speed or this is the heart rate at which you should not exceed during your effort because then you're going to be above your lactate threshold and all of the physiological consequences that go along with that are going to slow you down eventually so you want to be as conservative as possible in those races and of course in training then you're trying to push the lactate threshold as high as it can go that first one is what you're trying to do there so that's how you generally use that information for training and where relevant for competition yeah and just a note again on terminology for the listeners that here when we talked about zone one and zone two that that would be in a three zone system so zone one there will refer to the the moderate domain and and zone two to the heavy domain and and one note on that as well because i often on this podcast talk about moderate intensity training and then i kind of that refers to the heavy domain so, so it's yeah. even more confusing yeah. but low intensity moderate intensity and high intensity would correspond to the moderate domain and the heavy domain and the severe domain uh so yeah just a note there on that um 
it's fairly well established that at both galactic threshold and critical power can move independently of VO2 max or put another way, uh, one person's critical power or lactic threshold might be at a quite a different percentage of VO2 max than another person's, even if they have the same VO2 max. But what about, uh, can you move lactic threshold independently of the critical power? Can, can you get the two closer together if your focus is on the marathon, for example, and you're not an absolute elite runner, so you might not care so much about the critical power, but you care a lot about the lactate threshold. Can can you move that lactate threshold a lot and by just training around it? Or what do you think? Um, I think the answer to that question is I don't know. Um, at least I don't, I don't think there's much scientific evidence that that can be the case. But that's because a lot of that evidence is over relatively short-term um, training studies. So... Um, the actual answer is we can kind of look at athletes and see what they look like in terms of their domains. So what we do know is that in the highly elite athletes, we have what we might call domain compression. So they've reached their genetically predetermined maximum for VO2 max, which um, as, the, as the Breaking 2 project showed with, with their um, recent publication, that VO2 max isn't necessarily that high because they're, they're Obviously, the other factors of, of the lactate threshold and economy, running economy that come into that as well. Um, but once you've reached that ceiling, the further training-induced change is going to have to come from either upping those thresholds or improving your economy. And we know that those thresholds can be increased. And so what we tend to see is a domain compression where VO2 max stays where it is as a uh, as a power output or a speed, if you like. Um, and then the uh, the thresholds themselves start to rise towards it. And it's probably not worth using a speed. It's probably better to talk about a VO2. So the, the VO2 at which critical power occurs increases, and the VO2 at which lactate threshold occurs increases. And because there's a ceiling that's not changing, that means they're going to compress. Now, you know, if you look at it mathematically, one is going to ch- seem to change more than the other because the other one is already closer to the, the the ceiling as it is. Whether they change independently of one another, I don't know. I'm not sure there's there's any knowing what we know about the uh, the underlying molecular biology that's going on when you train. I'm not sure you can sit there and say, right, we're just going to up the lactate threshold today, and we're not going to worry about critical power. That's not kind of how the underlying physiology works. They will probably change in step, but we do know that elite athletes will probably have reached their their uh, predetermined maximum for VO2 max, and therefore any further changes are going to have to be in those sub-maximal markers and economy as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, one final question on lactate testing: Is there do you see any value in doing spot checks of lactate in training? Uh, I, yes, I think there is. Um, and I know that's, that's, um, happened quite often in the past. I mean, you know, there's, you know, various athletes who kind of had documentaries and they've taken a sample at the end of their training, for example. What that will do is tell you what domain of, in, of, of exercise intensity you're in. So if you take a lactate sample at the end of a series of intervals and then you look at what the lactate is, if it's, you know, up around seven millimoles per liter, then you know it's been effective. If you're trying to um, exercise as close to your lactate threshold as possible for a prolonged period of time, you take a, a blood sample at the end of that and it's around resting levels, then you know you've got it right. If it's above that, then you might say, well, actually, maybe I'm not as fit as I thought I was. Maybe we need to kind of 
either try and push the lactate threshold up a bit, or maybe I need to row back a bit if, if you're getting quite close to competition. So that does help. It's a bit of a rough um, and, and a, you know, a bit of a blunt instrument, I would say, in comparison to doing a full lactate threshold profile. Um, because if you've, if you've got that profile right to start with, um, then what it, what it might be able to do for you is if you are increasing your lactate threshold, some of the sessions that occur quite close to the lactate threshold um, might, uh, after training, be below the lactate threshold. So taking a spot lactate sample there would tell you that, that you're no longer getting the same kind of stimulus from that training session that you were and you probably need to up it. Um, but you could probably tell that from heart rate anyway and perception of effort, that kind of thing would probably tell you as much as a lactate sample. But if you want a, an objective measure of what's going on, then yes, a, a spot lactate sample would work quite well. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's that's an interesting point that you mentioned there. And, and that's actually one of the main reasons why I do longer stages when I do lactate testing up to 10 minutes that I see for me, even four minutes, maybe five minutes, doesn't necessarily give me good heart rate data. But with ten minutes, I can take the second half of that of that stage and get my heart rate there, and then I have a good association with with the lactate numbers that that can that I can I can kind of keep even as my fitness increases. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Mark's profiles on Twitter, ResearchGate, and his YouTube channel, All Out Physiology, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it to anybody interested in physiology. Also, be sure to check out the previous episode that I did with Mark uh, back in episode number 257, which I will link to. And as mentioned at the start of this episode, we will be back with the second part of this interview in next week's episode, episode number 331. We will talk about topics including VLA max, polarized training and fatigue and using complexity measures to assess fatigue. There's also a couple of studies that were mentioned in this episode that I'll link to in the show notes, so check that out if you're interested. And as I said, we'll be back next week with part two. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and want help to achieve your goals, then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or a training plan. Whether you're just getting into triathlon, trying to qualify for a world championship event, or even want to race professionally, we have experience in all of those scenarios and would love to discuss further around if and how we can help you on your triathlon journey. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what the best solution for you might be. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte, and carbohydrate needs and get an individualized plan. Also, book a free video consultation with the team to further refine your strategy. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Zen8. Use the Zen8 Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and most importantly, your swim training consistency. Get 20% off your order on the Swim Trainer with the promo code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com for slash TTS. And don't forget that it's a risk-free investment. If you don't love it after two weeks, send it back and you will get a full refund. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft bombs.